The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. So I mentioned that this is uh, week five in our teaching series, The True Story of the Whole World. And what we've said over the last several Sundays is that the Bible is a grand story. In fact, it is the grand story. Author Dorothy Sayers, writing in the 1940s and 50s, referred to the Christian story as the most exciting drama to stagger the imagination of man. So good. The most exciting drama to stagger the imagination of man. What we've said is that the Bible is not a textbook or a list of doctrines to adhere to, though, of course, it has those. The Bible is not a a book of heroes whose example you should follow or villains whose examples you should not follow, though it has those. We've said that it's not a book of moral lessons or fables, though it most certainly has moral lessons. And it's not a book of rules or a book of do's and do nots. Though I do wonder, though, though the Bible does have those, I do wonder if the do's and do nots that are in the book are one of the things that trips us up the most. Over the last several weeks in chapter one, We saw that God began the story with a garden wedding, where we saw God's purposes was to be present with his people in his place, that he created a a world full of sameness and distinction, and all of it kind of climaxing in the creation of man and woman, and the Bible envisions that as a parable of sorts for what God intends to do with everything. Like husband and wife coming together, God intends to dwell with his people. In chapter two, we saw how everything fell apart. There was a giant fracture introduced right in the heart of everything by the disobedience of mankind. But we're not left without hope because God promises that he's gonna address that fracture one day. Chapter three, we saw God's promising nature. That God calls Abraham out of the familiar, into the unknown, into trust. God covenants with Abraham. He says, I'm going to use you and your family. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make you a people. And through you, the nations will be blessed. And then last week, and one of the most, I think, compelling stories in the Bible is the story of the Exodus. Abraham's family is exiled in Egypt. They become numerous. It freaks Pharaoh out. Pharaoh intends to oppress the people of Israel. God commands Moses, raises up Moses, that he would lead the people on an exodus out of Egypt, where God determines to be present with his people in his place, where he intends to make good on the promises that he made to Abraham and his descendants. The goal is to bring them into a land flowing with Aaron's favorite, milk and honey, whole milk for certain, with the red cap, not the 2%, not the 0%, but the good stuff, a land flowing with the good stuff. Aaron pointed out helpfully last week that this is a picture of our salvation, that the New Testament picks up the imagery of the Exodus and says that there's one who is better than Moses, who leads a a different people on a new Exodus to something that's grander and greater than even the story that's present present, in the first chapters of the Bible. But then we arrive at chapter 5, law. One of those dirty three-letter words that probably give you the heebie-jeebies, law. One of the things we talk about often at Ridgewood is, especially as we start to think about the beginning of the new year, is going through Bible reading plans. Like, for many of us, we have good intentions about going through the entirety of the Bible over the course of the year. Some of us are really ambitious and have done it through 90 days, which is great, and I commend you. But my guess is that about this point in the Bible story is where things get a little dicey for you. 
You, you read through Exodus and you're amazed. You're like, man, this, this reads like a modern day novel. I mean, it's so incredible. The twists and the turns and the way the story is told. And then all of a sudden you arrive at something like chapter 16 and it's like, man, this feels very different than the stuff that's preceded it. This is the part in your annual Bible reading where things get a little bit sticky and where you get a little bit stuck. We read about, again, the compelling story, but then we arrive at these laws and things about boiling goats and not doing it in their mother's milk, and then you have these commands about mixing fabric, and it's like, what on earth are we to make of these laws? One thing that's helpful is to, is to situate the giving of those laws within the narrative, and that's what we hope to do today. In Exodus chapters 1 through 15, we're given the story of how the people of Israel are freed from Egypt. And this incredible plot thread is introduced, one that we've not yet seen in the story of the Bible up to this point. That God is a redeeming, saving God who redeems and saves the people of Israel. In some of the most beautiful scriptures, it says that God sees and he knows and he, he's aware of the groans and the tribulations of his people. And he responds in compassion by rescuing them. They're freed from Egypt. And then chapters 16 through 40, they're now freed to life with God. Freed to a life of holiness and joy. At least, that's the intention. Some of the passages we're going to look at today deal with what's often called the Mosaic Covenant, or the Old Covenant, how the New Testament refers to it. It's the third major covenant in the Old Testament. The first is given to Noah, where God promises not to destroy the world by a flood again. The second is the, the covenant made with Abraham, where God unilaterally, unilaterally says that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless the nations through your family, Abraham. And then we're given the Mosaic or the Old Covenant, the giving of the law. Now what's really interesting to think about is, is how God intends for the law not to be this sort of oppressive thing that's placed as a yoke or this burden on his people. Rather, the, the way that the law is described and presented in the Old Testament is, is something that's given to unleash his people further up and further in to a kind of glorious freedom that comes from submission and obedience to the designer and maker. In a lot of ways, it's reminiscent of what happens in Genesis chapter 1. God calls a people for himself, Adam and Eve, and then he gives those people a law, a command. And far from being burdensome, it's intended to be a, a joy to submit to the designer and the maker. So is this how it works itself out as we read this story? Are God's, God's people, do they, do they demonstrate themselves to be freed by the law? Let's look at Exodus chapter 19. Go ahead and flip there. We're going to look at Exodus 19, Exodus 32, and then we're going to flip over to Jeremiah 31. Spend some time in each of these passages this morning. By the way, I wanted to mention this real briefly. Um, as the holiday season approaches... Everybody has opinions about Christmas music and when to start listening, and I understand that, and it's controversial, and it's whatever. Don't start until after Thanksgiving, to be clear. That's, that's the official stance of Ridgewood. Um, Aaron agrees with me. Also, while I'm, while I'm at it, while I'm grinding an axe here, <laughs> we're all congregational, I suppose, to be true to the spirit. Um, let, me, uh, let me recommend this album for you here. It's going to come up on the screen. This is uh, Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God. Now, I know some of you are familiar. Some of you are very familiar with this album. If you are sort of interested in the big story of the Bible, nobody nails it as clearly and poetically as Andrew Peterson does with this album. Uh, as I was listening to Aaron's sermon last week, all I was thinking was this, the song Pass Over Us, Lord, Let Your Judgment Pass Over Us. It's, it's so good. This is an absolutely outstanding album, and honestly, it's really helpful for this teaching series because it tells the true story of the whole world and how it all climaxes 
and the arrival of the Lord Jesus. So uh, Brian Baker says he has a CD that he's willing to give one of you if, if you do that still, if CDs are a, a thing. Uh, but you can definitely find this on Spotify and, and listen to it. Highly recommend it. All right, let's look at Exodus 19. Exodus 19, starting in verse 1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called, him, called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came, and he called the elders of the people, and he set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the, words, to the, the people, uh, words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. So this is the covenant ceremony that takes place after he has, gosh, I love the way that this is described. After he has borne them on eagles' wings and brought them out of the land of Egypt to himself. God appears through Moses in their midst. He raises up Moses as their intermediary, their prophet. And he establishes a covenant with them. He says, you will be my holy nation. You will live life with me. You will live life before me. And you will be my treasured possession if, you notice that, verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. In verse Eight, how do the people respond? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Later on in chapter 24, the covenant is ratified with the sprinkling of blood on the people. We will do all that you have asked of us, God. We will do everything. We, we will remain faithful. God, you said that you will bless us and you will make us a kingdom of priests. You will do these things for us. God says, if you don't, you'll be cursed. And they say, yeah, 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 we got it. We're totally on board with this. We can do this. All you say, we will do. Now, it's worth pointing out at this point that this is a fundamentally different kind of promise that's being made here to the people of Israel than what we saw previously to the, to, uh, in the Noahic covenant and in the Abrahamic covenant. One of the features of the covenant made with Abraham in chapter 15 is that it's unilateral. One party agrees to bring about the results. It's not an if you do this, I will do this. It is a I will do this, period. But this is a different kind of promise that's being made. God promises that I will bless you in these ways, if, if you keep this covenant. And so, of course, the people say, yeah, yeah, we, we got this. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. You got this, I got this, we got this, we got this. Bless us, God. So will they. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the, sound of all the, in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care to not go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. 
So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The scene becomes kind of a, um, uh, like a, like a, a, an emblematic sort of, a, kind of a key moment in the story of the people of Israel. The Lord visits, and it's great and terrible. I mean, notice again in verse 16, there's a trumpet blast, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and there's a thick cloud on the mountain such that all the people in the camp tremble. And this is a moment of dread. This is a moment where the people of Israel are seeing, beholding the one true God, the other. And it's good for us to remember as we read this passage, you know, we'll get here in a second, that God eventually institutes a new covenant. And we're told in passages like uh, Hebrews chapter 10 to enter with confidence and with boldness into the presence of God. It's like, yes, but this is the God whose presence we enter into, right? Like the God who is fundamentally and completely other. You know, I've heard people talk before about sort of the, um, the oversaturation of blockbuster movies and kind of this this desire to want to make the screen bigger and the bass deeper and everything's like louder and bigger and louder and bigger. And they point to that as a sign that we live in a transcendence-starved culture. We, we live kind of a, in a very flattened-out reality where there's no supernatural, there's no, no surprises, nothing interesting. But we read through the Bible and the way that it describes God is one who is accompanied by thunder, lightning, and smoke who descends on mountains and it makes the people tremble. And so... Again, in the the New Covenant, God has given us an unprecedented kind of access to himself, but let's be really clear about the self that he's given us access to, right? This is God, the creator of all things, who is completely, with a capital O, other than anything else that exists. It's good for us to remember God's bigness and, frankly, the dread that the people encounter in the presence of God. We're told that God invites Moses up the mountain, and there Moses communes with the Lord for 40 days. And then in chapter 20, we're not going to read that again, but what Kathy read for us, we're given the the moment that you might be familiar with in this story, the moment where God dictates the law, specifically the Ten Commandments, to Moses. Now, again, if you're here today and you are familiar with the Bible or not familiar with the Bible, my guess is you have at least heard of the Ten Commandments. Commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment two. You shall make no idols. Commandment three, you shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain. Commandment four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Commandment five, honor your father and mother. Commandment six, you shall not murder. Commandment seven, you shall not commit adultery. Commandment eight, you shall not steal. Commandment nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And commandment ten, you shall not covet. All of this is given within the context of this covenanting ceremony where God tells his people, this is how you're to live life with me as my people and my place. And there's a couple of things to point out about this. First, 
The Ten Commandments aren't the only law that's given in this scripture. In fact, there's a total of 613 laws that are given in the Torah. And it's probable that those are a summary of more laws that extended beyond just those laws. And included within the giving of those 613 is a summary of the law, the Ten Commandments. It's also, uh, we're also given a, a snippet of the laws in Leviticus, where we're sort of given the outline of the logic of salvation. God saves, he covenants with the people, and then there's a holiness or an ethical purity in every life that's expected of his people. God is a holy God and he's dwelling in the midst of his people, and so his goodness and glory should radiate out from his people. And the law stipulates the ways that his goodness and glory are to set his people apart and radiate through them. So this isn't The Ten Commandments aren't the only laws that are given to the people of Israel. They function as a kind of back pocket summary. The second thing to point out is that when we talk about the law, it's really easy for us because of how foreign it is to assume that it's just a big, petty, arbitrary God who's making them bend over backwards and jump through hoops. There's obviously really strange laws that are given that are very foreign to us. Once again, boiling a goat in its mother's milk or uh, not mixing the fabrics, right? What God is doing by giving these laws is commanding his people how to be distinct in their cultural moment. So there's very sort of culturally specific commands that are given to his people. He's commanding how how they're to be his people, how they're to live. And the basis of the law is not arbitrary. The basis of the law is God's loving and holy character. What he intends to do by giving the law is to both restrain human evil and grant freedom to the people. The the law teaches about God's character and God's purposes for his people, and it teaches about the grain of reality, and it's intended to set his people free. The third thing to point out is that all of this is very reminiscent of the story of the garden. Once again, where God purposes to be present with his people and his place, and they're to do so within his parameters. God's people living out life with God for the nations to see that they're distinct, that they're different, that they're holy. The law is given for freedom. So the people of Israel are given these laws. You freed us from Egypt. You freed us to life with you, God. You've saved us. You've redeemed us. You've made us your own. We love you. You love us. You give us the law. We're going to do it. Once again, nothing to it. We got this, right? Skip to Exodus 31, starting in verse 18. And the Lord gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. This is kind of the iconic image in this story. It's Moses carrying the two tablets down the mountain. He begins to make make his way down the mountain with the two tablets, the summary of the law, written, it says, by the finger of God on stone. And so he's going to descend the mountain, right? And, and the people are going to receive it. And they're going to happily obey it forever and ever and ever. And happily ever after. They're going to relish the law. And they're going to enjoy it. And they're going to devote themselves to it. And they're going to live a life like, like spring chicks and, and young fawn kind of prancing through the fields. And it's going to be wonderful and delightful, right? Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
They've heard from Moses, and they've seen the fire on the mountain. They've heard the thunder. They've heard the warnings. Yet Moses, in their view, delays in coming down from the mountain. And so what do they ask Aaron to do? No, don't ask. What do they tell Aaron to do? Make for us an idol. Verse 2. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So what happens? It's like the, the, the commandments aren't, I, I think I said in group this week, the hot and ready sign is like still on. They're piping hot, like hot off the press. They're still warm to the touch. And the people don't obey. The people forsake the God who rescued them out of Egypt in favor of a golden calf that they fashioned out of earrings and trinkets. The problem is they're given the law They happily pronounce their intentions to obey the law, but what have they shown? They can't. They can't obey it. The law is external to them. It's written on stone, and so it's like water off a duck's back. It just can't penetrate their inmost being. And so the result is they they sin. They see the law. They like the law. They high-five the law. They say, give us the law. We'll do the law. Yay, law. But sin... The darkened human heart makes it so that they can't obey. Now, do you remember when you were a kid and you got a remote control car for Christmas? And you get that bad boy out and you, you, you peel it out of the packaging and then you craft with the leftover boxes, you craft a ramp in your driveway, you find the steepest hill, you put the RC car at the top of the hill, you're ready to see that thing go flying because you're going to break it before the day's over because that's what kids do with Christmas presents. You're ready to see that bad boy go flying. You get it in position, you got it lined up exactly right, and you go to hit the trigger and nothing happens. And you go back and you look at the box, and what does it say? Batteries not included, right? One author, and I think brilliantly, uses the analogy of an RC car without batteries and says, the thing about the old covenant, the thing about the law, is that it came with batteries not included. You mash the trigger, but nothing happens. The people of Israel demonstrate that they have no power to obey. They've shown themselves, though they've been freed from Egypt, though they are free in one sense, they aren't free in another. They aren't free to obey. So what's the result? What is the result of their inability to obey? Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God sees their idolatry, and he responds with just wrath to their disobedience. In fact, in verse 10, he says, I'm going to hit the reset button, and I'm going to make a nation out of you, Moses, because of their unfaithfulness. Skip to verse 15. 
Moses intercedes in a, a very um, a sort of famous passage. Moses intercedes and pleads with God to not do that, to remain faithful to what he was promised just earlier in Exodus chapter 19, verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, the tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. So what's the result of their inability to do the law? The people stand justly condemned before the law. In Romans 8, verse 3, Paul says that the law weakened by the flesh The law weakened by the sinful nature of humanity could not make us righteous. It just condemns us. Hold on to that. We'll return to Romans 8 in a second. So if you zoom out from this story to the big story, the rest of the story, we see this very same dynamic play out again and again, where God gives a command and his people are unable to obey it. It starts once again in the garden. God gives the prohibition, fail. God uh, uh, rescues Noah, and it appears that Noah is going to be the one through whom God grants rest. Once again, fail. Abraham, he's infected, and he's complicit with it too. Moses, Aaron, the people of Israel, they're sick with it too. You read through Numbers and Deuteronomy, and one commentator summarized it as one disaster after another after another. Unbelief and sin and law-breaking and knuckleheadery like you wouldn't believe. Then you get to the story of Judges where there's a cycle of disobedience where everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes and it's a mess. We eventually see King David, a man after God's own heart who has the infection too. It's in Solomon, it's in David and all the rest. And along the way, God shows himself to be merciful and patient. But the history of the nation of Israel is a cycle of disobedience and law-breaking. And when we get to the New Testament, Paul and others break the news to us that, well, sin and law-breaking isn't limited to just the Bible characters. It's not just limited to the folks at the foot of the mountain in Exodus 32. The reality is, it's all of us. That infection, that law-breaking sinful tendency is in all of us. In fact, what we see Israel doing is sort of functioning as a test case. It's like an exhibit A of what all of humanity is. Just like the garden, just like the first man and the first woman, Israel is all of us. We see ourselves in this story. And so the law is given for freedom. It's given for this glorious, good life with God to mark off God's people. It shows us God's wisdom and it envisions a world of holiness and goodness and justice. But at the end of the day, it shows that Israel and humanity, you and me with them, are crippled and condemned. We are crippled and condemned before the law. We aren't free to obey, and we are therefore guilty. We are crippled and condemned. Now, at this point, we might be thinking two things. The first thing is this. If the law just shows that we're crippled and condemned, doesn't that mean that the law is faulty? Doesn't that demonstrate that there's something wrong with the law? Isn't the law bad then? 
Or what Paul tells us again in Romans chapter 7 is that the law is not bad, but rather it's sin within me seizing the law through my disobedience. It's the human heart. It's our stiff necks and our hard-heartedness that makes us disobedient. So it's not the law's fault that we can't adhere to it. It's kind of like, uh, I, I once, she will go unnamed, but a, a young lady in our community group, I recommended a book to her that is objectively a brilliant and excellent book, and all she has done since I recommended that book to her is hate on it. And what I, what I want to say in this moment while keeping anonymity in place is that it's not the book's fault that you didn't enjoy it. That's all I'm going to say. Right? And it's sort of the same principle, right? It's not the law's fault that we're crippled and condemned before it. It's the human heart seizing sin through disobedience. So if that's the case, the second question that we might be asking is, okay, what can be done? What can be done about this? Are we just to, like, obey harder? We're crippled and condemned, so we're just to, we, we should just, like, double down and obey more and more and more so that we can not be condemned? And that's like... You can't swim and you're drowning. We just tell you to swim and pedal faster. It's like, no, that doesn't, doesn't work. That's the, pro- that's the point. That's the problem. Can't God just relax the standard? I mean, if, if everybody's in this boat together, can't God just sort of take it easy on us? And two things to that. I mean, first, God can't because the, the standard isn't external to himself, right? The standard is wrapped up in his holy character. And secondly, that would make God complicit in our evil if he just overlooked it. Swept it under the rug. So we're just doomed for judgment then. We're just without hope. And we are, in de- we are destined for condemnation. Fast forward about 500 years from the story of Moses to the prophet Jeremiah. Go ahead and flip to Jeremiah 31, verse 31. In this passage of Scripture, Jeremiah receives a word from the Lord, a day when God would cut a new covenant, a better covenant. Let's look at this, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Look at this, verse 32. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Watch this. I will put my law where? On stone tablets? External to them? No. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Watch this. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Do you see what Jeremiah is saying? He says there's coming a day when God cuts a new covenant that's not like the covenant with Moses. That's very much not like the old covenant, but a new covenant, a better covenant. And what two things does he say that he'll do there? He'll give them batteries. He'll write the law on their hearts first. And secondly, he will forgive their sin. So how does he do this? The answer, the short answer is Jesus. Jesus. Romans 8, once again. 
For what, uh, uh, excuse me, Romans 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see what Paul's saying here? Is that God has done what he promised in Jeremiah 31. Jesus is condemned for his people. He's not like Adam and he's not like Israel. He's the faithful Israelite. He's the faithful covenant partner. He lives a perfect life. He fulfills the law and then he dies on the cross for our sin so that our condemnation could be lifted. But don't miss this. Jesus also makes us able to obey. Something you'll see Paul talk about again and again in the New Testament is this call to walk in the Spirit, which is to say, to live in obedience, that we are finally freed to obey the Lord. In 2 Corinthians, Paul actually uses that imagery of the law written on tablets, and he says, in the New Covenant, the law is not written on these stone tablets external to you. Rather, the law is written on your heart. The law now penetrates our innermost parts. It is in our heart, and we now have the freedom to obey. The freedom to obey. So how does this story intersect with our story? First thing I say is if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, hear me say this. You aren't free. You are crippled and condemned before the law. And maybe you hear that, and maybe the initial response to that is to push back. But, but I actually think you know this. I actually think all of us know this. There's a musical that was released in like 2016 that was released and kind of had a resurgence in 2020. Uh, it was on Disney Plus called Hamilton. Anybody familiar with Hamilton? The musical Hamilton? Um, don't necessarily recommend it, um, you know, because all the qualifications in place. But something that's really noteworthy about the, the musical Hamilton is at the end of this musical, uh, Alexander Hamilton's wife, Eliza, who's this prolific, brilliant, orphanage-starting, just incredible woman whose legacy is like still celebrated today, she asks over and over at the end of the musical, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Over and over, have I done enough? This prolific author, this woman who has celebrated the legacy of her husband and the other founding fathers who has started orphanages and done all sorts of good deeds, she asks, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? And you know what the answer is to that? No. You haven't. You can't do enough. You can't speak up for the marginalized enough. You can't be pro-life enough. You can't serve the poor enough. You can't give enough. You can't self-flagellate enough. You can't decry big pharma enough. You can't be alert to systemic injustice enough. You can't do any of it enough. But what the Christian stories, get this, hear this, what the story of the Bible offers us is relief. It is freedom in Jesus. Listen to this. In Jesus, you are free from condemnation. You are free from condemnation. Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation in Jesus. The just judgment that you earned, that you deserved, in your inability to obey the law, the condemnation that you were owed has been lifted on the shoulders of Jesus. Christian, 
Jesus dies for you. God's anger against you and his just judgment towards you is poured out on Christ for you. And that's the reason for the cross. And what's so great is actually all of this accords with who God reveals himself to be way back in Exodus chapter 34. You don't have to turn there, but listen to what God tells Moses in a fantastic bit of foreshadowing. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passes before Moses and proclaims about himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You know what's so great about that? He has visited our iniquity on one of these children that are described here, the Lord Jesus. It says that he's a God who forgives and who can't clear the guilty. And how do those two things work together? On the cross of Christ, where he pays for your sin by the death of Jesus, who willingly embraces death for you to be condemned for you, Christian. Jesus obeys the law for you, and you are free from that condemnation that you have earned. That's the good news of the gospel. That's not all. The second thing, in Jesus, you are freed to obedience. Holiness and obedience is on the table for us, Christian. We are freed from the law. Yes, we are made right, but we are also, in another way, freed to the law, freed to obedience. Not obedience to the old covenant law, per se. No, that law is obsolete. It was binding on Israel. It has lessons for us, and it teaches us about God's purposes and about God's morality. What we are free to obey now is the heart of the old law, love of God and love of neighbor, what the New Testament calls the love of Christ, what Jesus calls a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees, not in quantity, but in depth. Jesus gives us batteries and enables us to live this out, a life of wholeness, walking in the Spirit, freed from anger to love, freed from lust to sexual wholeness, freed from scroogeliness to generosity, freed from bitterness and resentment towards my wife or my husband, freed to forgiveness and humility. Christian, those things are on the table for us. For freedom, Christ has set us free by his spirit, writing and working out the law on our hearts. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we still, it doesn't mean that we don't sin, not at all. The scriptures talk about this battle that's at, at war within us. There's two, two wolves within us, right, that are, that are fighting things out, battling our sin nature. The old man still remains. We should strive to obey, but we should grow in holiness, but the old man does remain, and he's stubborn, and it will be that way until Christ makes us new at the end of the story. But hear this, Christian. In Christ, you're free. Two poets in two different poems capture this brilliantly. These stanzas are some of my favorite things ever written. The first comes from a, a, an author. Uh, it's unknown. His name is John, as you'll see in a second, but we don't know which John it is. But look at this. Run, John, and work, the law commands, yet finds me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and lends me wings. The law exposes our inability to obey, but the gospel, by that he means forgiveness and the gift of Jesus' spirit, bids us fly and gives us wings. Another poet, William Cowper, writes this. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. 
I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. I can't not sin, he says, and I hate it. I lay oppressed under the law in bondage and distress. I can't obey, but watch. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Tattoo that on my, on my chest, you know? That's so good. The answer is that the law has been fulfilled in Christ. He obeys for me. He is judged for me so that I can be pardoned. And that's not it. Obedience to God, which used to be oppressive and drudgery, is now a joy. I can want to want to want to obey. I can see the beauty and the glory of holiness, and I can see that Jesus loves me enough to work that out in me day by day by day. So this morning, I wonder if there's any of us who have walked in here wounded and limping and beaten up, completely oppressed under the law. The only message that you have ever heard about Christianity is do, 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 do. The word for you this morning is done. Jesus died for you. Death is no longer an option for you. Christian, don't wear your guilt. You sin and you feel guilt, and we should feel guilty from sin to some degree. But listen, Jesus bears it. We take it to him, and he forgives us readily and eagerly. God reveals his heart to us in Exodus 34 when it says he is merciful and abounding in steadfast love. The Puritans used to say that Jesus is more eager to grant forgiveness than we are to ask for it. God looks on Christ and pardons us. Christian, be oppressed under the law no more. But maybe you walk in here and you have no regard for holiness. You say, because of God's forgiveness, I'm free to sin and I'm free to live life however I want to live. God forgives. That's his job. And what I would say to you, friend, if you have, misunder- you, you have misunderstood what it means to be free. Jesus loves us too much to let bitterness and lust and anger and wrath and envy have the final say for us. He wants to work out virtues and goodness within us. And I'm convinced like one of, the, one of the ways that we can live counter in a, in a culture that's sort of shifting with regards to Christianity, one of the ways that we can live counter is to be holy and to show how compelling holiness is and how much of a relief it is to be free from all of those things and to, to know God and be known by God and to look like the Lord Jesus. And this morning, if you walked in here and you have never believed, what I would say to you, friends, is this is, this is the story of all of us crippled and condemned apart from Christ, but what he offers is freedom. And it's the best kind of freedom that you and I can fathom. Now this morning, we're going to invite every Christian to take part in the Lord's Supper. As we take part in the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of the true story of the whole world and the different themes that sort of develop over the story and play itself out. We're reminded as we eat the supper of God's presence with his people. God is a God who invites us to a table to know and enjoy him. We're reminded of the new exodus, a new Passover meal, where we're reminded that God's judgment has passed over us through the blood of the Lamb. And in the Lord's Supper, Jesus tells us this is the sign of the new covenant. It's assurance that we are free from condemnation and we are set free to obedience. The way this works is we always invite those who have been baptized, who have believed on the Lord Jesus, who have been baptized and who are in good standing with the local church. You can make your way to the front after I read our liturgy here in a moment. We always ask folks to Go uh, outside against the walls here, make their way, grab the elements, hold on to the elements, and sit down, and we'll take all of the elements together here in a moment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Lord Jesus, we come to you with uh, gratitude, a, a kind of thankfulness that words can't express for what you've done for us. And we, we pray that you would help us to see and understand uh, our place within your story. Would you help us to see and understand what it means to be a people freed, freed from condemnation, but free to obedience. And we pray that as we take the supper, that our, uh, our, our weakened knees would be strengthened, that we would be um, encouraged to pursue and pursue and pursue and to row and to row and to row. And would we continue in faithfulness, not to earn your favor, but from your favor, from the pardon that you've granted us. God, we pray that you would make Ridgewood a, a holy people as you are holy. And would you give us the the kind of magnetism of Jesus that drew people to him because of how distinct he was. Would you help us? Would you be with us? Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.